boundaries are not about what other people do. They are about the actions that you are willing and capable of taking to keep yourself safe and healthy. Hey, hurdlers, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 249 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. For today's episode, I am excited to bring you my conversation with Melissa Urban. She's the CEO of Whole30, as well as a New York Times best-selling author. And as we kick things off today, chatting about the quote-unquote boundary lady (laughs) these days. That's because her most recent book is called The Book of Boundaries, Set the Limits That Will Set You Free. And in today's episode, we chat all about how she became the official authority on boundaries. She has, at this point, taught millions of people how to establish healthy habits and successfully navigate pushback and peer pressure, something that she really knows firsthand about. After spending most of her 20s as an addict and turning her life around at 26. It was then that, with the help of her personal trainer at the time, she went on a 30-day diet, which later inspired the start of Whole30. In today's episode, Melissa talks to us all about what Whole30 is and what Whole30 isn't, who the program may serve best, plus how the trauma she experienced growing up has informed the way that she navigates her day-to-day, fueling her desire to show up for her community and focus on helping others sustain their health in the long term. I do want to make sure that I point out that in this conversation, we do talk about some sensitive topics, including sexual assault and drug addiction. So if you or someone you know are struggling, know that you're not alone. I'm going to put some helpful resources in the show notes. Make sure you are following along with Hurdle over on social. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And a little bit of housekeeping here. I would absolutely love it. I say this all the time, but now this is your golden opportunity because I'm prepping a specific listener questions episode. Please ask me a question. Let me help you. No topic is off limits and asking it is super simple. Just click on over to the show notes there. There is a link that says leave me a voice message. If for some reason you have problems with it, don't worry. Just record a voice note and email it to us over at hello at hurdle.us to be featured in the upcoming episode. And with that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am amped to be sitting down with Melissa Urban. She is the co-founder and CEO of Whole30. She's also a New York Times bestselling author, podcast host. How are you doing, Melissa? Hi, I'm really good. It's so good to be here with you. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for making the time. You are a busy woman and a busy woman that also knows a thing or two about boundaries, which is where I want to start us off. Because I remember when I saw that you were releasing a book you did at the end of last year, October 2022, the book of boundaries set the limits that will set you free. How did you, Melissa Urban, become the authority on boundaries? Well, I, I won't say the authority, but I am known to many spouses on Instagram as that boundary lady, right? So people <laughs> would, you know, be talking about uh, their boundaries with the Whole30 program. That was really where I got started. I co-founded the Whole30 in 2009. So I've been helping people change their health habits and relationship with food through the program for 14 years now. And, you know, Whole30 is an elimination program. So for 30 days, you say no to a lot of foods in the name of this self-experiment. And I quickly figured out that people struggled to say no, especially in the face of peer pressure and especially in social situations. So they started asking me, how do I say no to the break room donuts and mom's lasagna and the pizza at the birthday party? And once they figured out I was really good at helping them say no to that, they started asking me about their pushy mother-in-law and their gossiping coworker and the, you know, nosy neighbor. So it very it very organically kind of morphed into other boundary conversations and all of it really came to a head in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic when work and home and school and kids and housework and relationships all blended together. And we realized that we had no boundaries and especially women, especially moms were just drowning. And that was really where the inspiration for the book kind of hit me was October, 2020. October, 2020, but not your first book, actually nowhere near it. When you got into writing along with co-founding Whole30, was this something that you saw as a part of your path moving forward? I never wanted to own my own business. I never set out with the intention of like running my own business. Um, I began blogging in the early 2000s when I found CrossFit and, you know, was on the message boards and I had a little blog spot and I had some good followers and I always liked writing and I always was good at writing. That was kind of my creative outlet and my mental health outlet. And so writing and then discovering kind of the whole 30 as a, you know, little self-experiment in 2009 morphed into writing more blog posts, creating more resources for the program, establishing the framework for the program and the philosophy and researching. And, you know, then kind of the first book came in 2012. And I think this, I think I've written seven Whole30 books now. And the <laughs> Boundaries was my first not Whole30 book. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely a different adventure there. It was. It's interesting. Writing the book of boundaries was very similar to writing the book Food Freedom Forever, which is kind of the what comes after the whole 30 in that as I was writing, I was really forced to examine my own philosophy on this concept. You know, Food Freedom Forever, I created. Boundaries was certainly not a new concept, but I was thinking about it in a way that had been different from any other book or you know, article I had read in the past. And so as I'm writing, I'm almost stress testing my own ideas around it. You know, does this work? What are people going to be confused about? What's the pushback I'm going to get? How would I address it? So they were similar in a way, but it was a little scary to step out of Whole30 comfort zone into a mm -hmm. brand new area. Yeah. 
Yeah. And when you work on Whole30 related books, who are you working with on these? Like nutritionists, what other experts are you collaborating with to make sure that you're servicing your clientele in the safest way possible? Yes. So I do all the writing for the books, but we have a huge team of registered dietitians, medical doctors, mental health care practitioners, psychiatrists, psychologists, naturopaths, functional medicine practitioners, researchers that I've been tapping into since the very first book to advise and guide and, you know, create um, a new body of research according to the latest scientific evidence and help us distill it in the framework of Whole30. So I have a lot of people who are actually experts in their field that I rely on. And then I take that and translate it into the book that is accessible and easy to read for most people and and kind of translate it into the framework of the program. So yes, we do have, you know, a large body of folks that we work with, but I've always done all the writing. All the writing. Oh, that's yeah. so great to have so many, so many awesome experts and stellar people in your corner. I know that if we're going to wind it back a little bit, you didn't always feel like you had a wide net of people to rely on. So talk to me a little bit about your upbringing and what your support network looked like or didn't look like from an early age. Yeah. I mean, it really, it kind of varied. I feel like I went through this like really sharp kind of record scratch, you know, right turn when I was about 16. But I grew up in as part of a large Catholic Portuguese family. We always had aunts or uncles and cousins hanging around. There were 30 people, you know, for every holiday. I always had aunts or older cousins picking me up and taking me to McDonald's or taking me to a movie. It really was sort of a, I was raised by the village of my family. And I felt like I had a lot of support. And, you know, from my parents, my mom stayed home with us while my dad worked and my younger sister But then at 16, I had an incident of sexual abuse by someone who was in my family, someone I was really close to. And I didn't know how to handle it. When I finally told my family a year later, they didn't know how to handle it. And that was the point where I felt like I lost all of my support system. Um, I felt really abandoned. I was really confused. I was so young. And that led me, you know, to this journey of of trying to escape from that trauma and, and the uncomfortable feelings and the you know, everything I didn't know how to process. And that led me to drugs. And I spent the next five years addicted to drugs also with, you know, no support system, really hiding my behavior and existing in isolation for as long as I could. So I've had a a kind of a ABC after school special, I think, story when it comes to my life. But, you know, I entered into recovery 20, it was 23 years ago now. And, you know, from there I found health and fitness and wellness. And that really led me to sort of the second half of my life. But yeah, it was, it was, it's been rocky. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I can't even imagine what that roller coaster must have felt like for you. You mentioned finding ultimately health and wellness and fitness and so many good for you habits. But in terms of the trauma that you would experience, what would you say really helped you navigate that when you finally got to a place where you knew what you needed to deal with it? Yeah. I mean, therapy. I happened to be matched with a therapist in rehab. He was just the one randomly assigned to me. And I could not have found a better therapist for what I needed. He was so direct. He had so many really unique perspectives. And he was not afraid to call me on my bullshit. Can we say bullshit? Mm. I assume that we can. And so all of the tactics that I had used in the past to sort of manipulate and keep people at a distance and try to get them to like not look at me and, you know, not pay attention, none of that worked with him. So really spending time in therapy, unpacking my trauma, kind of learning to maybe forgive myself and view the situation from adult Melissa perspective rather than the 16-year-old perspective I had been stuck in for so long was super helpful. 
But then I combined that with, I started going to the gym. I made a group of like-minded friends. I started setting boundaries around my recovery, which was brand new. You know, all of these things kind of worked synergistically to help me feel like I was a healthy person with healthy habits instead of someone who like four weeks ago was snorting heroin, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about, I started setting boundaries around my recovery because whether it is overcoming uh, this situation when it comes to substance abuse or so many other areas, of course, your expertise here lends to the importance of setting boundaries so that you can get to where you want to be, which can be very challenging. Yes. I consider boundaries like the supportive hammock for all of your health and wellness habits. I won't say foundation because the best boundaries are flexible, but if you want to start a new habit or maintain a habit or start practicing self-care, all of those require that you have a solid set of boundaries to protect your time, your energy, your space. When I went into rehab the first time, I had a year in recovery and then I relapsed. And it felt like it came out of nowhere. And in looking back, of course, it did not come out of nowhere. I had not changed anything about my life except to say, I'm going to try not to use. And the second time I entered into rehab, I realized that I had to change a lot about my life if I was going to actually maintain my recovery. And one of the things that happened in a complete kind of random situation is I found myself at a party I didn't belong at with people I didn't know with a friend who didn't know I had relapsed. And I felt so unsafe and so afraid for my recovery and my life that an honest to God boundary tumbled out of my mouth. I said to him, I, this is not good for me. I can't be here. I need to leave. And I thought that he was going to make fun of me. I thought that he would like abandon me. And he was a really good friend. And he was like, okay, ask me a couple questions. And we left. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, I need to start telling people how I feel and what I need. And I need to start advocating for myself. And if they can't keep me safe, I need to figure out what I can do to keep myself safe. That changed everything for me. Yeah. And that level of like personal accountability, right? Because I think a lot of people may get to a place where they're they they're ready to do what you did. They're ready to say, hey, I don't think that this is serving me. I need to leave X situation. But then what you said, I thought that he was going to make fun of me. What do you say to the person that's navigating that kind of dichotomy on their journey to trying to mm -hmm. emphasize their boundaries? I think in that moment, if he had pushed back or made fun of me or minimized, I don't know if I would have had the strength or the tenacity to say, okay, then I'm going to get myself home. I'd like to think I would. Now that I have more experience and now that I'm helping people set and hold boundaries, I want them to be prepared that that kind of pushback or response is a possibility. Most of the time when we try to set a boundary, we do so out of a desire to improve the relationship. And the other person loves us and they want us to be healthy. And they probably just didn't know that we had a need. And once we express it clearly, they're happy to meet us in it. My friend was more than happy to go, oh my God, I had no idea. You didn't feel good. Let's go home. But there is always the possibility for pushback. And what I want people to remember is that your boundary does not depend on anybody else's reaction or response. You do not need to have anyone agree with or understand your boundary in order to enact it because boundaries are not about what other people do. They are about the actions that you are willing and capable of taking to keep yourself safe and healthy. And I think once people make that shift in their head, oh, I don't need them to hold my boundary. I can hold it myself. 
that brings a real sense of empowerment and a sense of comfort such that if they do push back, I still know what my backup plan is to get myself out of this dangerous situation. Definitely. And if you don't mind sharing, what other boundaries did you enact after your second trip to rehab that really helped you move forward into this new chapter of your life? Oh, I start. It was like a boundary rum springa, you know, where like the, the Amish kids go off and kind of like live their life for a year before they finally commit. I started setting boundaries anywhere and everywhere. I told all of my friends, you cannot use in front of me. You can't ever offer me anything. You can't bring drugs into my house. If you do, we can't be friends. And it, there were some people who were not able to respect that. And I literally cut the relationship off. Uh, people at work would say, you know, oh, do you want to go out? We're, you know, celebrating the big win after work. And I'd say, yes, I don't drink, but I'm happy to come out with you. And like, I definitely want to celebrate. I'll have a glass of water. It'll be really fun. So I was super clear up front that I was not open to invitations to alcohol, but I still went and had a really good time. I set boundaries with myself. Like, if I had an early gym session scheduled for the next day, I would make sure that I was home and in bed by 9 p.m. I got rid of clothes that reminded me of using. I got rid of music that reminded me of using. So I set boundaries anywhere and everywhere I could to create as much of a buffer as I could between my temptation to use, which was still there, and the actual action that I know was going to set me back and cost me my recovery. And all of those boundaries were incredibly protective and they felt so damn good. That sentiment, I got rid of clothes that made me think of using and yes. other, you know, things within the home that reminded you of that time. That's really powerful. Yes. Yes. My Cypress Hill t-shirt gone. My red baseball hat with the pot leaf gone. I was like, why am I still, why do I still have this around? This is not who I am anymore. I had this mantra that I was a healthy person with healthy habits. And I was looking for evidence every single moment of the day to prove that I was a healthy ha person with healthy habits. So I would see this hat with the pot leaf and I would be like, that's not, I'm not going to wear that. That does not vibe with like my current energy. The playlists, you know, I wouldn't suffer through a Portishead song. If it made me feel icky in my stomach, I just stopped listening to it. I changed my friends. I moved apartments. I got a new job. Like I really did not only add things to my life, but subtracted things using boundaries as a way to just carve out this new space for myself. Aside from that therapist, who else was helping you on your journey to implementing this more boundary-filled positive life? You know, I made a group of girlfriends at the gym. I started going to the gym every morning at 5 a.m. I had never gone to the gym before in my life, but that's what a healthy person would do. And I met a group <laughs> of girls there who ran, and I'd never run in my life, but I started running with them, and they didn't know drug addict Melissa. This was a new city a new gym, a new group of friends. They only knew I was like Melissa who showed up at the gym five mornings a week and wanted to start running. And they helped me to see myself through their eyes, which was so incredibly important. And eventually I did tell them that I was in recovery and not that long out. And of course they were incredibly supportive, but that group of girlfriends were really, really helpful for me. My writing was also really helpful. This was around the time that I started writing my blog and, you know, while I wasn't talking about my recovery yet, I had not ever talked about it publicly, just sharing some of my, you know, feelings and some of my workout challenges and how I was feeling about running and some of my adventures, I found really cathartic as well. So those were two, I think, kind of groups of things that were helpful. We are the people that we surround ourselves with. It's interesting to me, that line that you said, 
that's what a healthy person would do. How often are we inundated with that, right? This concept of, well, that person is living a life that looks great. So that's what I should be doing. Or this person looks like they really have it all together. And I see that they do hit classes twice a week. So I should start doing hit classes twice a week. When you started running regularly with this group of women, I'm curious, did you like it? I did. I did. You can't pay me to run, by the way, right now. Like I would not run to the end of the block unless like someone was chasing me. But at the time I did. And it was because I didn't know anything else. I had Mm. never weightlifted. I never played sports and our runs, you know, I was running a 10 minute mile talking the whole time with this group of women. Yeah. So it was really, really fun. Eventually, within just a matter of two years, my body told me it did not like running. And so I found something else to do and still stayed in touch with these women. But you know, what I chose to do at the time was really, it it served me. And I think it was less about the activity and more about that I was committing to doing something on a regular basis with a group of people that made me feel really good about myself. And I kept showing up for myself. When did you first publicly acknowledge your recovery journey? I had been doing Whole30 workshops for about a year and a half. It was like 2010. And we had been traveling from CrossFit gym to CrossFit gym talking about the Whole30. That's kind of where the Whole30 grew and started to take off and spread. I was very involved with CrossFit. And after the end of one of my workshops, someone came up to me and they said, I'm going to ask you a question you don't have to answer. Are you an AA? And I was like, what? And she said, there's language that you use when you talk about the Whole30, when you talk about your own experience that is recovery language. And I was like, oh shit, I didn't even realize it. And AA and NA were not a big part of my recovery, but I had been to plenty of meetings and of course had absorbed the things that worked really well for me. That was the point where I decided I probably wanted to start talking about my recovery publicly. That and the fact that I was talking about the whole 30 with people, talking about the idea that food is so deeply emotional and we can get stuck in this spiral of craving and overconsumption and the guilt and the shame and the isolation that brings, which brings us more stress and more overconsumption. And people would look at me, a thin bodied fit woman and say, what the hell do you know about craving and overconsumption and guilt and shame? And I just really wanted to say, because because drugs and food are not that different when it comes to that cycle. And so I finally did, I wrote one blog post and I just said, this is my story. This is my backstory. I was terrified. And of course the response was nothing but supportive and positive and encouraging. So did you set any boundaries when you shared your story? I did in that I only shared the things I chose to share and I would only answer the questions that I chose to answer. So there were some things that felt too intimate for me to share. I was not yet talking about my trauma at that time at all. So I did. And I told myself that if the comments were not positive or were hurting my mental health, I would literally turn that off and would not look at them anymore. Like that was it. Um, And I, of course, was pleasantly surprised by how, again, supportive everybody was. But it was important for me to really own my story. And even if people Mm -hmm. had said to me, wow, this makes me trust you less or this makes me really, you know, question your credibility, I needed to stand in that and say, okay, like I knew who I know who I am. I know what I bring to the table. I am embracing all parts of myself, including the, you know, teenager and young adult who was a drug addict. Like she's me. 
And it was really important that I do that. You know, something else that you said really resonated with me when you were talking about individuals who you were speaking with were wondering who is this small, thin, fit woman to talk to us about struggling with food? What does this woman know about struggle? And then not knowing at that time that you had a background with substance abuse and of course that trauma history. But there are so many individuals, and I want to say specifically women, although obviously this doesn't discriminate based on gender, that truly do struggle with so many deep-rooted issues, as you know, when it comes to food. And they are made to feel like they are not allowed to have issues because of their size and stature. What do you say to those individuals? Because I know that you are hearing from them often. Yeah, this is a really complex and nuanced topic, and I'm still learning more about my privilege in this space, but there is an enormous amount of privilege associated with being thin-bodied in today's society, the societally accepted standard for what is pretty, but also what we have conflated with healthy. So though I was a drug addict and I did have this these issues, even as an addict, and even in my recovery, I still wasn't faced with the same kind of marginalization that people living in larger bodies were. I was, oh, I mean, even in, I remember getting out of rehab and people were like, wow, you look so thin. You look so good. And I'm like, cool. I just quit heroin. Like, come on. So, you know, I, I'm always careful when I talk about this sense of shared experience that I do know what it's like to feel out of control, to feel guilt, to feel shame, to kind of use the thing that you hate yourself for the most to self-soothe from that stress and guilt and shame. But I don't know the societal marginalization and discrimination that comes along with like physical signs of that struggle. And so there's a delineation there that I'm always really careful to make. For the individuals that come to you, maybe without this similar path of different traumatic experiences or substance abuse in their history, what do you say to those that may be in smaller bodies that still feel as though they are struggling with their relationship with food? Oh, I mean, I think struggles with the relationship with food are relatively universal, totally across even across genders. But I do think that it is more heavily felt by women for whom the patriarchy and stereotypically rigid gender roles and diet culture and religious influences and trauma and the media and advertising have just weighed so heavily on us to be smaller, to be compliant, to be, you know, small. Um, I think that is the kind of intersection of Whole30 and boundaries is that Whole30 really tries to provide a different avenue that is not weight loss for people who want to improve their relationship with food and discover the foods that work for them. And much like my work with boundaries, we are unlearning and railing against this idea that in order to be good and loved and liked, we need to be small and compliant. So there's a lot of overlap there. Before you co-founded Whole30, what were you doing for work? I worked in insurance. Um, I started fresh out of rehab as an administrative assistant and worked my way up to managing a group of business analysts and operations analysts in three different offices. So I had a team of about 20, mostly young women reporting to me. And I was there for 10 years and I loved it. I loved that work. I loved that job. I went back to school and earned my business degree while I worked at that job. They had tuition reimbursement. So I was able to finally graduate from college. Um, But then, you know, towards about 2006 or so, I started 
my CrossFit blog and I started writing about diet and nutrition and training and started doing more work with CrossFit and opened a small CrossFit gym. And, you know, then in 2009, kind of the whole 30 self experiment came about and I started writing about that. And I realized I was doing both of these things kind of poorly at this point. And I would either have to like take the leap and see if I could make whole 30 work, but that meant quitting the best paying job I'd ever had. Or I was just going to continue to do this job that wasn't filling me up as much as this other work for the kind of safety of it. And then Whole30 would kind of flounder. So I took the leap. What I'm hearing you say through talking about your previous job experience is that you found a lot of motivation after you got out of rehab the second time to be able to head up a team of 20 is super impressive. And then to be doing that while also pursuing your other interests really shows a lot of tenacity on your part. I was always incredibly motivated. I was always just thrilled by the idea of hard work. All of that made me a very good drug addict. When I tried drugs, I dove in so hard and so deep and so fast. I did not have a drug of choice. I loved them all. So all of the things that made me a really good addict also make me very good at other practices. I'm just kind of able to steer that like energy into other areas. And I really liked feeling successful. I really liked working hard and doing a good job and learning. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, as someone who like had to quiet this voice in her head that I was just this worthless drug addict, you know, piece of crap. It was nice to get promotions. It was nice to graduate from college. It fed me. It all fed me yeah. and it all felt really exciting. Which is no wonder why when you got to this crossroads, realizing that you were doing two things, not to the best of your potential, that you had no option but to pick one and run with it. Yeah. I mean, I really, again, had no desire to own my own business. And if I knew how hard it was going to be, I don't know if I would have done it. And honestly, I had no idea what I was doing for many years. But I loved Whole30. I loved the impact that it was having. I felt like I could talk about it endlessly. And when people would send me their success stories, like really life-changing stories, I was like, man, this feels good. So it felt easy to make that leap and then like, okay, well, we'll figure out the business stuff. But I did go back to school and I got a business degree while I worked in insurance. My earlier degree, like I was a pre-med major my first time around through college before I had to drop out. And my insurance company would only pay for a business degree because that was related to the industry I was in. And I was like, whatever, I just want to graduate. And then my business degree served me really well building the brand. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like for you to know that you wanted to build this company and pursue your passions with Whole30 following that excitement, but not really knowing the first thing about going about that or how to do so. I mean, again, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that made me blissfully happy and excited, right? I had no people talk about like, oh, what was your strategy for growing? And I laugh because I'm like, oh, it's so cute that you think I had a strategy. All I cared about was helping people do the whole 30. And that was and honestly still is my North Star. I am not a profit driven CEO. I'm not a growth driven CEO. All I care about is impact. And all I wanted to do was help people do the whole 30. And so Every single thing I did was so community focused. It was it was connecting, it was listening. I gave everything away for free for such a long time. You know, it was 2 years before we started charging 30 bucks for a nutrition seminar or a you know, downloadable like ebook. But all of that time was just spent listening, looking for pain points, creating resources to help solve those pain points refining the messaging, refining the support, adding to the free stuff in resources that we offered. And 
that was, it turns out a really great strategy to grow a business. I didn't know that, but I <laughs> knew that I was helping a lot of people find success with the program and that was actually changing their lives. Why was that important to you? I mean, every, I guess everyone wants to make a difference. I'm not one of those people who think about like, oh, what's the legacy I'm going to leave behind? Like, no, I don't really think about that. But I noticed the incredible transformation that the Whole30 had on me. It identified kind of holes in my relationship with food that I had never seen before and allowed me to create other healthier coping mechanisms for discomfort, anxiety, boredom, you know, when I needed to show myself love, it really radically transformed my relationship with food, my relationship with my body. I felt like the whole 30 was the first time I was able to get off the scale and out of the mirror. And because it was so impactful for me, like I wouldn't shut up about it. I wanted to tell everyone about it because I felt like it had such potential. And when I ran the first little group of a hundred people through the program in July, 2009 on my little blog, and they started coming back with remarkably similar, equally stunning stories. I was like, wow, I think we're onto something here. This is like a thing. Um, so, you know, as long as I, I think as long as I was connected to the community and hearing those stories and seeing the difference that the blog post I wrote made in someone's life, I was really happy with that. And I was like, well, we'll figure out the money thing, you know, on the way. And we did. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsors. First up, my friends at Open. For those of you that may not follow along with me on Instagram, then you may not know just how obsessed I am with Open as a part of my morning routine. Open is a mindfulness studio. It's a space to become alive through breathwork, meditation, movement, and sound. The open method is rooted in the science of transforming the brain and training the body for longevity. And as the creators of breath and sound with an app that's sweeping the wellness industry, opens proving what they set out to do to make the benefit of the present moment accessible to all. I start every morning with my open app. I do a three to five minute breathwork routine and it helps me just come back into my body and prepare myself emotionally and mentally to take on whatever the day is gonna throw my way. Of course, the app offers so much more than just breathwork. They've got meditation and movement classes as well. And you can practice with your friends when they do live classes that enable you to also chat live with your instructor. Truly love this platform. It has transformed the way I think about mindfulness, and I know that you are going to love it too. Practice on the open app or in person at the LA studio or both. Head on over to withopen.com slash hurdle to get 30 days free today. Again, experience open for 30 days free by heading on over to withopen.com slash hurdle. Also got to give some love to my friends at EG1 from Athletic Greens. I'm sitting here with my bottle right in front of me. I'm all about the morning routine. I talked to you about open being a part of it. EG1 from Athletic Greens is as well. And that's because it is my... God, nutritional powerhouse, immunity superhero, you name it. Without AG1, my day just feels off. And that's because it's got 75 whole food source ingredients, as well as prebiotics, 
probiotics, adaptogens, superfoods. Literally, this bottle of goodness is my recipe for just feeling the best in my body. Not to mention, it also packs the equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables. This stuff is my go-to, and I know that if you're not on the train yet, you won't regret it. Head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to get five free travel packs as well as a year's supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to get a bunch of freebies and get in on the AG1 gang today. So you get to a point where you finally start charging something like 30 bucks for a nutrition seminar. And I mean, I will like cut to the the end game here. I mean, now Whole30, I feel like it has everything, right? There are products that are certified Whole30. You do so much more. So what happened from, let's say, like point B to point Z? I know. I mean, people are like, wow, it seems like Whole30 came out of nowhere. And I'm like, yes, a 14-year overnight success, <laughs> right? You know, there's a lot of time and energy put into that. But we started doing workshops. The workshops led to me thinking I wanted to write my first book, got the first publishing deal. The first book came out. Our community was rather large and really super engaged in Whole30. The book hit the New York Times list. That got us some national media. We started working with brands who made products that were Whole30 compatible because I didn't want to make food, but these brands were making awesome food that my whole 30 years could eat. And I was like, wow, what a great like win-win for everybody if I connect the community to these brands. So we started licensing the logo to brands like Epic and Sea Snacks. And now we have 140 Whole30 approved partners and Whole30 Salad Bowl and Chipotle. And, you know, so that really grew. I continued to write more books. We, you know, created our Whole30 certified coaching program in 2017. And that went on strong for a solid couple of years where people were able to get one-on-one coaching from you know, people who were certified through the program. We launched a salad dressing line a couple of years ago. So it's definitely continued to grow. But through it all, all I am ever really doing is looking at the community and saying, how can I help you be more successful? Every offshoot of that, like that's the litmus test for every single thing we do at Whole30 is, is this going to help someone be more successful with their program? I'll be honest. I've never tried Whole30. And I'm curious to get your perspective on this because the reason that I haven't personally tried Whole30 is as someone with a history of weight loss, I definitely struggle with the idea of completely restricting things from my diet. When you hear that, what do you say? I say that that you should listen to that and the Whole30 might not be right for you. The Whole30 is not designed for anyone with a history of disordered eating or disordered eating patterns. This is not the program for that. There are other programs and other philosophies that are so great for that community. This is not that. And also, any restriction can lead you down a path to disordered thinking around food. We are all swimming in diet culture. And if you find that on your Whole30, you think to yourself, okay, I'm not eating, you know, this is a self-experiment. It's not about weight loss. I'm going to eliminate things for 30 days, then add them back in and compare my experience. But if in that elimination, you find yourself saying, well, I'm giving up, you know, all grains, maybe I should give up fruit too, because fruit has a lot of sugar, or I'm giving up, you know, these foods, but maybe I should also restrict my portions or restrict my meal timing. That's a red flag. And that's a, you know, a, a prime sign to say, this program is leading you down a path that is not healthy for you. And I would highly recommend you like take a time out, go talk to a counselor or a therapist or a support group or, you know, find another protocol that works for you. The Whole30 works incredibly well for millions of people, but it is not for everyone. There is no one size fits all. 
And if you're worried about the idea of restriction leading you to an unhealthy brain space, I would highly recommend looking at a program that does not involve restriction. Right. And at the same token, also like speaking one-on-one with a registered dietitian, right? And I know that we haven't completely homed in on exactly what Whole30 is just yet, you know, 35 minutes in, but I want to make sure that we give that some air as well. So Whole30 means no dairy, no grains, no added sugar, no alcohol, no legumes. Am I missing anything? So those are the food groups that we eliminate. But to like take one little step backwards, Whole30 is based on the framework of an elimination diet. Elimination diets have been around since the 1920s. They are still considered by many medical doctors to be the gold standard for identifying food sensitivities, even with all of the lab testing we have, which requires time and money and privilege. Even with all of that lab testing, an elimination diet where you leave something out for 30 days, add it back in and compare your experience is still such an accessible and relatively short period of time to learn about the foods that work best for you. So that's the framework of the program. When you get into the things that we are eliminating for 30 days, it is based on the idea that these foods are commonly problematic to varying degrees across a broad range of people. We don't eliminate foods because they're bad. We don't think you should never eat these foods again. What we're saying is the clinical research and our experience have shown that these foods can be problematic. So let's do an experiment where you pull them out for 30 days. Like a hundred percent though, you got to do elimination diets really by the book. It's not like you can pull them out for a couple days and then have kind of a day off. That's not how elimination programs work. And then at the end of those 30 days, we have a reintroduction schedule where you're bringing those foods back one at a time, very carefully and systematically like a scientific experiment and comparing your experience. So that's the body of the program. If people don't understand that it's an elimination diet, They might just hear, well, you give up alcohol, you give up sugar, you give up grains, and they might think it's some kind of like boot camp or a hazing or some kind of nutrition challenge. And that's not at all the case with Whole30. Um, So I always like to start with sort of the basic foundation. All right. All right. The very basic foundation. So, but that's super helpful, right? Because then through the reintroduction phase, you have an opportunity to compare your experiences. Exactly. So if you take dairy out, and you just happen to notice on week two that you're breathing better, you haven't had an asthma attack, your skin is clearer, your seasonal allergies are better, and then you reintroduce dairy and those symptoms come back, that gives you valuable information about the way dairy works in your system. We are still not saying, oh, you shouldn't eat dairy then. What we are saying is now you understand the way this food affects you and you can make your own conscientious, deliberate decisions about when and how often and in what format you include these foods into your diet because Mm -hmm. sometimes they're just delicious or they're culturally significant or they're family significant and you want to keep eating them. But at least now you'll be able to eat them, understanding the effects that they have on your body and ideally be able to mitigate those effects with the frequency or the you know quantity in which you're eating them if you choose. Is there a specific uh, food or category that you learned for yourself really wasn't serving you when doing Whole30 and you still are mindful of that today? So dairy was the big one. I used to eat so much low-fat yogurt, low-fat cottage cheese, tons of string cheeses, like all of these kind of higher protein foods that were dairy-based. And it wasn't until I gave them up and realized that having diarrhea like every day was probably not normal. Like I was was pooping so much every day and was like, well, that's just how my body works. And then I gave them up and was like, oh, and then I reintroduced them. And it was like an alien in my belly. And I was like, 
Um, but that was 14 years ago. Now I've, you know, improved my gut health and I've been kind of eating this like food freedom, whole 30 style plan for 14 years. And now I can definitely eat some cottage cheese. No big deal. I can definitely enjoy cheese. No big deal. I can have like the occasional ice cream. No big deal. I don't notice those same consequences, but I don't miss it a ton. So I don't bring it back a ton. Right, right. So definitely education that has stuck with you and enables you to learn your body better. I think that that is something that's so interesting with just us as humans, right? Is that we get to a point, especially as we age, where we almost surrender and think that we have to deal with certain aches or pains because that's just how it is now. And it doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to have a constant headache. You don't have to continuously wonder if going to the bathroom four times a day is normal. Like it's not normal to be regularly in chronic pain. Yeah. And, you know, food, of course, is not going to like magically fix everybody's symptoms or health condition, but it can have a powerful impact in in ways that people may not associate with what they're eating. So if you are a smoker, if you smoke cigarettes and you have this chronic cough, and I said to you, hey, your cigarettes are probably making your cough worse, you'd be like, yeah, fine, I get it. But when my mom had this chronic shoulder tendonitis that was so bad, she could not lift my child or like even put her own shirt on over her head. And I said to her, boy, I wonder if some of the stuff in your diet is impacting your tendonitis. Like, I wonder if maybe you have a gluten sensitivity. She could not put together the idea that eating bread might make her shoulder hurt worse. So it can have a powerful impact in ways that we may not associate. Some of these foods have been marketed, blanket marketed to all of us as universally healthy. And we know there is no universally good or bad food. So doing a self-experiment like this can give you valuable information about what works well in your unique context in a way that a scientific study or a headline never could. We mentioned uh, a slew of books you've authored, obviously being the co-founder and CEO of Whole30, such a massive, massive, massive company. Also, you just mentioned your child. How has it been for you driving this company forward while also having and managing your personal life? My son is now 10. I remember having him and thinking, well, I will, I'll just write blog posts while he naps. And I just want to smack myself for all the things I said about (laughs) how like having a kid before I had a kid, I was the best parent before I had a kid. Um, you know, there have definitely been challenges, but this is the point again, where I'm like reminding people of all the privilege that I have, because I'm not one of those people who are going to show up and say like, well, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. And we all just have to like make it work because no, I have a full-time nanny and a half-time child because he's at his dad's every other week. I have a job that lets me show up whenever I want. And uh, my gym membership is a business expense. Like I don't, I have a lot of privilege in this area and it's made it a lot easier to run the business and, you know, raise my kiddo. Um, But yeah, there were challenges. I had to figure out how to set boundaries, mostly with myself around my work time and what I said yes to and how much I would take on to make sure I had enough time to nights and weekends, like not work and spend that time with my kid. And there's, you know, it's always changing because as your kid changes and grows and your business changes and grows, you have to flex. But I think I've found a pretty good balance now. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting, right? Because you can try to set those boundaries as I have when it comes to, for instance, editing the show on the weekends. I always tell yeah. myself I'm not going to edit on the weekends, but then you, uh, let that boundary fall by the wayside and you realize like, oh, was it really that bad that I had to edit the show on the weekend? Knowing that I didn't want to do it. Can you yeah. give us an example of a boundary that you may have flexed on at one point, but finally became able to concrete for yourself? Yes. It was no phone in the morning. I mm. have a boundary now that I don't look at my phone. I don't look at Slack. I don't look at email. I don't look at social before my morning routine is done. Sometimes my morning routine is like a half hour. I wake up, I go for a little walk with the dog. I feed my kid breakfast. I get him off to school. Sometimes it's like 90 minutes. This morning I woke up. I took myself to the gym for a full hour. I like ran some errands. But my workday does not start. And it was it's so hard to maintain that boundary. But what would happen is, you know, I'd wake up. I'd roll over. I'd look at my phone in the morning out of habit. And I would think to myself, well, who's going to know, right? Nobody's going to like jump out of the closet and slap the phone out of my hand. What harm is it going to cause? But when I started thinking about the impact to future Melissa that this small little action had, I would wake up, I'd roll over, I'd look at my phone. Chances are I would either get sucked into something and end up scrolling longer than I wanted to, which eats into my morning routine time, or I would see an email that was a fire or a tweet that outraged me or somebody's terrible comment that I would feel like I had to reply to. And that would set the tone for the rest of my day. I would feel reactive instead of proactive. My mood would tank. Maybe I would get so distracted that I wouldn't have enough time for my workout, which really hurts my mental health. The consequences of this small action to future Melissa are actually pretty significant. And once I started framing it like that, it became easier to pick my phone up and go, no, I'm not going to do that to her. Right. And then an hour later, future me would be like, sweet high five. Thank you so much for taking care of me here. The consequences of this small action can be detrimental to your future self. That's really powerful and a really great way to frame it, right? Because we think, oh, it's not that big, not that big of a deal. Like, I'm not going to do it. And then you do it and you're like, but was it a big deal? And it can yeah. be. You mentioned yeah. throwing off your energy for the entire day is a big deal. Yes, it is. It's a really big deal. I mean, it affects how I show up at work. It affects how I show up with my kid later on. It affects my self-talk, right? You, yeah. gosh, Melissa, you're so stupid. Like, just get off of Instagram. Why are you so on Instagram all the time and you didn't even work out today? And that's going to make you probably sleep like crap. And then what if you have a bad day tomorrow? Like the, you know, the negative self-talk really starts turning. It can create this swirling tornado. All that stems from like the butterfly flapping its wings when I pick up my phone. <laughs> totally. The butterfly flapping its wings. It is really beautiful to hear you talk about this because it really just is an example of how upholding boundaries for yourself is truly you giving a gift to yourself. And that gift keeps on giving not only to you, the person that's executing on these boundaries, but then also to the people that you care about, whether it be coworkers, employees, friends, family, so on. Yes. Boundaries are a gift. They are a gift to all of your relationships. When I take responsibility for my own feelings and needs and I communicate those clearly, I am creating a sense of trust and safety in our relationship. You know that when I say something, I mean it. And if I can't do it, I will say no. And I'm not going to show up resentfully or begrudgingly or anxiously or be mad about it later on. This is especially important with kids. Boundaries create such a sense of safety with kids. And we've had boundaries with my son since he was so early. And now he feels comfortable setting and holding boundaries with us, which is such a healthy dynamic, I think, for a relationship. And when you set a boundary with yourself, it goes beyond just I'm protecting future me from the consequences. It is I am worthy 
of having this need and meeting this need myself, right? I know that when I say to myself, I don't want to pick up my phone in the morning because it does not serve my highest good. And then I put the phone down or I choose not to look at it. There's this feeling of, yes, I had a need. I identified it. I'm worthy of meeting this need. And I was capable of doing it all by myself. And that feels good. And that really spills over into every area of your life. What are you working on right now, Melissa? And I asked that in like a, what's one area of your life that you personally are struggling in or trying to work on? Because someone listening to this right now might feel a little bit frustrated thinking, wow, this woman's got her boundaries on lock. (laughs) She has this company, a cute little 10 year old kiddo. Like, what are you working on? Let's get real. Yeah. I mean, I'm in still in therapy. I will never stop talking about therapy. And I got back into therapy. You know, I take breaks from it to let myself kind of like take the skills that I've learned in therapy on the road. But I got back in a few weeks ago because I felt like there's still some work to unpack around my trauma and some of my relationships. And I'm doing a lot of reparenting right now. So I'm kind of like talking to younger Melissa and healing some of those relationships, which is good. Um, I always struggle with my mental health in the winter. And I feel like we're finally coming out of the winter now. But there's a little bit of like repair that I need to do with relationships where I withdraw quite a bit in winter from friends and family and connections. So now I'm really, you know, even with my husband, like we're trying to go out more and have more date nights and do more fun things. So, you know, I'm working on that. Um, the Things with Whole30 are fantastic in terms of the impact, but there's always, you know, it's a business. There's like always stuff that's going sideways. So you're always kind <laughs> of like um, trying to figure that out on the fly. I am working on the next Whole30 book right now. So being on deadline again is so stressful and I have bad dreams about book deadlines every time I write one. <laughs> um, so that's happening. But yeah, and I'm I'm working on some of my physical fitness again. I battled a respiratory infection for like six weeks over the winter that left me feeling like I couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs. So I'm just, you know, getting back into the gym and rebuilding that like kind of slowly and being super graceful with myself. Yeah. Thank you for that vulnerability. And I think also when it comes to your note about the going in and out of therapy, that's something that we don't talk about a lot, that that is actually like a pretty regular and super normal practice that we should be okay with. People say, well, I was in therapy and now I'm taking a break. Like, yes, take a break. Do what you need to do for you to take care of your mental health. And when you get back to a sticking point where you say to yourself, you know what? Something's not feeling right. Then it's okay to go back. I think that's such a smart idea. Honestly, we can't, I can't work on myself 24-7, 365. It is exhausting. Like I need to take breaks from like thinking about my feelings and talking about my feelings and doing the work. Like I can't do that all the time. I just want to like sometimes (laughs) live my life and enjoy it. And also if I'm always in therapy, I never have the opportunity when my husband and I get into a conflict and I want to revert back to like my old behaviors to go, okay, wait, why am I feeling triggered? What skills have I learned? And how can I approach this differently? I want that opportunity to like test drive my skills. So my therapist and I have an understanding where I'll say like, okay, I feel really good about this. I think I'm going to take a break. I will reach back out to you in a couple months and I'll make sure that like, it's not, you know, I try to reach back out before there's some kind of emergency. Um, yeah. And she's like, cool with that. Yeah. And I think that also you said like, I'm going to let her know. I'm going to take a break for a few months. Oftentimes I've certainly had friends who have been like, oh, I feel so bad telling my therapist that I need to take a break. Like 
this is a working relationship. Like if you have to take a break, like you get to say that. Yeah, I think that you should. I mean, especially <laughs> if the idea of therapy is stressing you out more than it's relieving stress. We enter seasons in our life where we don't have the time. We might not have the financial resources. We might not have the energetic capacity to like unpack yeah. and start going through all that stuff in, tr- in therapy. So Yes. You don't have to worry about hurting your therapist's feelings. If they're not the right therapist for you, you should tell them. If you want to take a break, you should tell them. Yes. 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 (laughs) Clearly. I, uh, you were saying, and I would totally co-sign on this, that for many, myself included, those winter months can certainly be challenging. So I'm grateful that you and I are getting to do this at the, at the very beginning of spring here, where we might be in a little bit better of a mental, a mental space. What else right now excites you, Melissa? That's a really good question. I mean, work always excites me. I'm always excited about the possibility of new people discovering Whole30. That is really exciting. However, I feel like over the last year or two, I've come out of a mental health kind of fog or slump. My depression was really bad for a couple of years to the point where I tried ketamine therapy, which was helpful. But I feel like, yeah, that's like a whole nother conversation. (laughs) It's very interesting to do ketamine therapy as someone who used to be a drug addict. That was like definitely, but it was very helpful. I found that it definitely pulled me out of my, the worst of my slumps. But I feel like over the last six months or so, I've really resurfaced and I'm starting to see more of the like open, wanting to be connected, wanting to be outgoing me than I have seen since the pandemic began. So what I think what I'm excited about is like tapping into that energy, right? I'm seeing like light parting through the clouds and I'm like, cool, let's take advantage of this. Do you oh. want to meet for coffee? Can we do an outdoor yoga session? Can I take the dog for another walk? Like just that idea of feeling like I want to be more connected right now and then acting on that to be more connected to friends and family is I think really exciting for me. You know, as someone else who has certainly navigated my own situation with depression, I think that that analogy is really powerful. And also this concept of like utilizing your potential when you truly feel like it is within you and not judging that one day you may feel like you have a greater bandwidth than another. I know that it's super easy to feel frustrated and angry and so many things on those low days, but really just taking advantage and having grace with yourself to do the best you can with what you have. It's just such a beautiful and empowering message. Yeah. I've definitely learned to do that for myself. And I've also learned to do that with the people that are close to me. So it's not unusual now for me to say to my husband, I love you. Everything is great. I'm having like a really rough mental health day. So if I'm, if I'm feeling disconnected, it's just that, or I'll say to him, I would love to sit on the couch with you and like watch something together, but I'm really struggling to be connected right now. So like if we could just be alone together, that would be great. And he's, you know, really good about responding. And I feel like that allows me to give myself that grace. So I'm not worrying about what he's thinking or if I'm not showing up for him the right way. Yeah. It's been a working process though. That communication though is what's up. <laughs> yeah. We don't mess around in this house. We really don't. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So as we start to wind down here, Melissa, I want to know right now, someone goes to your Instagram page. They like from their first scroll, they see a co-founder, a CEO, someone with something over 300,000 followers. But when you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Okay. First thing I see is like, I'm 32. I am just 32 inside my head. And the idea that like, I am definitely going through menopause right now, or at least pre-menopause, maybe we don't know. We never know, but maybe that's what's happening. And I just bought my first pair of reading glasses. So like officially I would say I'm like an older person, but in my head, I'm still 32. I don't, I see someone who is relentlessly committed to showing up as me all the time. 
that is something that I decided many years ago when I started to have more of a public presence and I realized that other people's compliments could really fill me up, but other people's criticisms could really tear me down. I decided the only thing I really can't mess up is showing up as me. And I have this big platform. And I think one of the best things about it is that I get to use it to talk about my values and the things that are meaningful to me and important to my community. So I don't shy away from that. When I look at it, I see me. If you met me in person, I'm not any different than the way that I show up online. And people tell me that all the time. And I consider it, I think, one of the best compliments. Why is that? Because it means that I'm doing a very good job honoring me. It means that I'm no longer trying to image craft to get other people's approval. I'm no longer hiding pieces of myself that feel shameful or less than or imperfect. It means that, you know, no matter where I'm showing up, you are actually meeting like me where I am in that moment. That feels really good. It takes a lot of pressure off. It does take a lot of the pressure off. It's it's an exercise I do often in some of the workshops that I run prompting if you were to walk into a room and you only had 15 minutes with a group of new people and then you walk out of the room, what would their impression be of you? And is it who you want to be? Is it who you think that you are? Right. Mm. And that can be really challenging, right? Because oftentimes, especially with new situations, we will walk in with a guard up. And the question is, why? Why is your guard up? I think again, as women, we so want to be liked And we are so conditioned that we have to show up in a certain way to be liked. But like if you had asked me that question 15 years ago, I would have said, oh, I would want them to go walk away saying she's so smart. She's so well-spoken. She's so pulled together. And if you ask me now, I would want them to say as I walked away, like, well, she's a really good listener. Oh, she like, yeah, I really liked her energy. Like that's what I would want them to say. So, you know, I'll probably have a different answer 10 years from now, but I definitely (laughs) think I am showing up with boundaries, but not guarded, right? I We don't have walls, we have fences. My fences yeah. are solid, but I am showing up like, what do they call it? Kind of strong spine, open heart. Yeah. I love that. I love that. You have fence. You're like Wilson looking over the fence, yes. trying to help everybody else with yeah. all of their boundaries. What's one boundary <laughs> that you're working on right now, Melissa? Ooh, it's really with work. I mean, I'm yeah. struggling a bit more with work right now because I'm on book deadline, which means I have to say no to a lot more things like podcasts mm. like this. But then I get an invitation like this and I'm like really excited about and I'm like, okay, I'll I'll say yes to this. And I know it's going to mean that I might have to like go in a mm-hmm. little bit early one day or stay a little bit late. So there's always that tension between, you know, wanting to say yes, because it's either a good opportunity or it's going to be fun and saying no to protect my capacity and my work time. That's always a struggle, but it's an especially struggle when I'm on a deadline. Yeah, yeah, that's totally understandable. Well, I'm so truly happy that we were able to make this happen. I have been wanting to have you on the show for what feels like forever now. So truly, when I say your time means the world to me, it really does. How we wind down here on Hurdle right now, I'm going to ask you, Looking back at that hurdle moment of you going back into rehab, struggling with your trauma and past substance addiction, you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice knowing what you know now. What do you tell yourself? 16-year-old Melissa would not have listened, but imagining that she did, I would say trust yourself. You have received nothing but messages your whole life that you can't trust yourself. You've received those messages from every outside influence. Always listen to yourself. Always put your own needs and feelings first. Always trust your gut like you are trustworthy. That's the message I would send. 
I love it. Melissa Urban, again, so happy that we were able to do this. If they don't follow you just yet, how do the hurdlers keep up with you? How do they follow along with you? Give us the details. Yes, I am at Melissa U on Instagram. My website is MelissaU.com. I'm on TikTok, Melissa underscore U. Those are all the great places to find me. Amazing. I'm over at Hurdle Podcast and at Emily Avati. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.